Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, a.k.a. Possibility Man. We're committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Our guest today is Dr. Adina Asatorian, widely known as Dr. Adina Pharmacist. She has had a 20-plus year career as a pharmacist. She once owned a compounding pharmacy and tailored medications for pain management, which helped reduce oral narcotic use. She has a passion for helping drug users and their families understand drugs, find healthier alternatives, and cultivate better relationships. Her mission is to change lives through the power of love and understanding drugs. Dr. Adina, pharmacist, welcome to the show today. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Such a pleasure seeing you and meeting you. I have been looking forward to talking to you for a long time for us to talk about a serious subject, and you are the expert to educate us. But first, a reminder to our listeners and our viewers, follow, like, and share this podcast wherever you find it. Your support matters, and it helps us attract guests like Dr. Adina, pharmacist. Dr. Adina, I want to make this disclaimer that you shared with me as we begin our conversation, what Dr. Adina, pharmacist, says on this podcast or any other platform or in literature is for informational purposes only and pertains to her life story and journey with her loved one. It is not to be taken as medical advice. Everyone is unique and should seek their health care provider for individual treatment. That's a very important disclaimer. I'm glad you shared that with us today. Thank Firstly, you. Dr. Yeah, Dr. Dina, why did you study pharmacy? You know, there aren't too many people that I I've met a few, but you know, who chose I want to so when did you decide to study pharmacy? The that I uh, became a pharmacist was because I really had a passion for helping people and pharmacy would allow me to do that from behind the counter. Uh -huh. I didn't want, I wanted to be able to help people with their health, but not so up close and personal as a physician would. So I, I able to do that from behind a counter and the part, I mean, not that I didn't want to do was the touching and those things are things that I didn't want to do. So that is the main reason that I became a pharmacist. I see. At what point in your education did you say, I want to be a pharmacist? Do you recall when it happened for you? Yes, it was around when I was 18 years old. Wow. I really, yes, I had a passion for helping people with their health. And I also love chemistry. That was my like top, top subject matter. Okay. And with that combination, I felt that pharmacy would be the best profession. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay. Now, as busy as you are as a pharmacist, you are also a podcast host. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the podcast that I ended up creating was actually something that I felt in my heart that the Lord Jesus Christ wanted me to create. And so it is called What Your Heart Beckons For, mm. Surrender. And so I just started doing the podcast. And it is mainly for people who do believe in Jesus Christ. 
Uh-huh. I know faith is very important to you, and I'm going to bring you back to that a little later in our conversation. But I want to go back to you as a pharmacist. You know, as you were doing your education, what were some of your early goals as a pharmacist? Some of my early goals was just to be able to have a job in uh -huh. a, a corporate setting where they pay an amount that is going to allow you to pay off your loans. Mm -hmm. And also for me to be able to, in that corporate setting, help patients oh. to be at their best with their healthcare and okay. to have the right medications instead of having the ones that are going to cause them side effects. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be in that setting, an advocate to people to let them know that Although sometimes big pharma may say this medication is mm -hmm. good, I would be one of the pharmacists that would say, let's stop and rethink this. And you, I do not mm -hmm. agree with this one. And this one mm -hmm. is a little bit more dangerous. Those mm -hmm. were my main goals as a pharmacist initially. Okay. So now as a pharmacist, are all pharmacists people who do compounding like you did or... Is this a subspecialty? No, not all pharmacists do compounding. Uh -huh. There are some pharmacists that will do compounding. And what compounding is, is it is medications that are tailored to the patient's needs. Mm. And although my specialty was pain management creams, I did compound all compounds that were non-sterile, meaning oh. all compounds that were non-injectable compounds such mm -hmm. as pet medicine, hormones. So all compounds that did not require a sterile hood is what I compounded mm -hmm. patients. Okay. okay, so you've been around, you know, uh, drugs, prescription drugs for a long time as a pharmacist. You know, it seems to me there are two sides of the coin when it comes to prescription drugs. And do you follow what I'm su suggesting here? Yes, of course. Yeah. Well, let me give you a quick example because I know a couple of people who have had a stroke and they were given a, some type of pill and I'll tell you what, they were stabilized. And I heard a cardiologist told me that if someone comes to her with you know symptoms of a heart attack, that she could give them something that will clearly stabilize many of them. In some cases, I was like, well, there are two sides of this thing called drugs. So what do you think? So I am not a cardiologist. I cannot oh. comment on that specific case. I don't mm. know what happened in that case, but uh, what I can talk about are the two sides of opioids. Okay. Other drugs that are out there on the market. Oh. With, uh, and that is one of the reasons I decided to become a compounding pharmacist. Because mm. when I was in the pharmacy uh, industry working as a pharmacist with traditional medications, I noticed that they will cause a lot of side effects mm -hmm. in addition to helping the patient mm -hmm. and compounding uh, with those traditional medications. It was more of uh, uh, less, less options for the patients because they were not tailored to that specific patient's needs. With compounding, I found that I was able to gear the pain creams more specifically to a patient on a localized level. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, let's say talking about opioids, mm -hmm. opioids have 
a lot of side effects. And initially back then when I started, which was in before 2001 even, but I became a pharmacist in 2001, I was working as an intern before that in the pharmacy. And starting then is when I noticed that they would start saying, um, they would say an advertisement, which was opioids are less than 1% addictive. Mm. And this is what we were told as pharmacists. And this is what we were told as physicians. And I'm not a physician. That's what physicians were told. And at the time we were told that the best motto is to give the patient as much opioids as are necessary in order for them to have complete pain control. And they should not have any pain whatsoever. And as soon as their pain was starting, we need to give them the narcotic again and that it is okay and that it is less than 1% addictive. Well, I noticed that that was becoming harmful because I started noticing that as I was seeing the opioid crisis unfold in this way in the medical industry, in the United States on a large scale, I started seeing it in my blood relative loved one. Mm -hmm. I am going to refer to here as Jack. And I started seeing how the opioids were taking him down, so to say. Yeah. He had physical pain. And yes, they were helping with that pain. But at the same time, I was seeing the rest of his life falling apart. And Mm -hmm. I was seeing him becoming more and more drawn to the narcotics and becoming more needing it going from a place of okay i have some tolerance i need more to then okay now i'm dependent on it to then oh my goodness i am addicted to these Mm -hmm. now what do we do and moving forward i saw that about seven years ago or so they did another study and they Uh came back and they said that narcotics opioids are actually uh very addictive Mm. they are highly addictive Mm -hmm. one in four people can get addicted to taking opioids and just about anybody can get addicted to them okay so i want to come back to to the opioids but i want to blow back and ask you if you're willing to to answer about other you know prescription drugs like maybe Oxycontin, the ones that I know about Oxycontin, is that considered an opioid? Yes. Oxycontin okay. is an opioid, and that is one of the uh, drivers mm-hmm. of the opioid crisis. Okay. Uh, what, about, is, what about oxycodone? Yes, that is in the same class. That is oxycodone is the active ingredient in Oxycontin. Okay. What about hydrocodone? Because that seems to be widely prescribed. Is that mm-hmm. considered an opioid as well? Yes. Wow. Oxycodone, hydrocodone, fentanyl, morphine sulfate, mm-hmm. dilated when you go to the hospital, meperidine. All of these are opioids. What about Percocet? Is that in that same yeah. family or different? Okay. All right. So, all right. So, some of these drugs, prescription drugs, are beneficial. Is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But there are some dangers as risks as well. Absolutely. But Uh in the case of opioids, what happens is that the risk really outweighs the benefit. Uh So that is when as healthcare professionals, that's what we look at. 
I see. A drug goes on the market, you want to have less than 10% side effects. And you want to make sure that the serious ones are very low. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, going back about 15 or 20 years ago, they uh, the pharmaceutical industry was forced to put a black box warning on drugs, mm-hmm. meaning that this drug has this serious side effect that you need to be know, knowing about as a patient before you take it mm-hmm. and make a decision whether you still want to take it or not. Before then, they didn't have these black box warnings. Yeah. I mean, some of these disclaimers, and I've seen them on television or you heard them on the radio, they go so fast, it's hard to even take down what the negative you know, side effects are. Uh, I'm not sure if that's deliberate or just happenstance, but... Uh... Yeah. So prescription drugs have to be, patients have to be aware of the side effects and the doctors educate us about that. Is that, is that the way it goes? Yes, that's accurate. But what I want people to understand is that opioid prescribing has tremendously changed as of about seven years ago. Mm. Physicians and pharmacists have been told that it is not okay to give over even a seven day supply. Uh So initially, for acute pain, they need to be very cautious. And then if the patient needs more, then they need to very closely monitor that patient. Mm-hmm. Originally, what they were saying back then, like over 20 years ago mm-hmm. was, remember I told you like, give, give, give up to six months mm-hmm. is okay. Now they're saying people can get addicted as as early as a month of use, yeah. as early as even at two weeks of use. Okay, I'm glad you said that. So the bottom line here is that people, because a lot of us think when you talk about addictions, we think about something else. Mm-hmm. But people, from what you've just said, may become addicted to prescription drugs that they purchase at a drugstore, you know, in Walt, or, you know, store. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And not only narcotics, there mm-hmm. is also concern about medications that are being used for ADHD, uh-huh. such as, for example, let's say, um, there is a medication called desoxin on the market okay. that can be used. Some people use it. They're not um, there. It is supposed to be used for weight loss or treating other mm-hmm. conditions. Mm-hmm. But uh, what's happening is people are not aware that the active mm-hmm. ingredient inside of desoxin mm-hmm. is the same active ingredient as in crystal meth. Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. I'm glad you said about other conditions. I mean, conditions other than addictions are being treated with medication that can be dangerous. You know, I, I once heard, and I'm not sure, I'm away from it now, that some prescriptions that were given for, um, you know, for depression, for example, were also highly addictive. One of them was Xanax. I'm not sure how, how, how you know, it's prescribed today, but uh, that, that medicine could be highly, highly addictive. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the mixing of Xanax with opioids can be a cause for an overdose. Yeah. And it has, mm-hmm. it has become cause for an overdose. And the mm-hmm. difference between, let's say, crystal meth on the streets and this desoxin is that when people are misusing drugs, that is exactly what they're doing is they are misusing mm-hmm. it. So they're taking the wrong dose. Mm-hmm. They are just trying mm-hmm. to get high and uh, they don't know what's in the drug that's on the mm-hmm. street. It can be tainted. Crystal mm-hmm. meth can have fentanyl in there. 
And you just overdose thinking you're using crystal meth and you're just overdose because there was opioid. Yeah, you're already getting into the opioid crisis. And I want to isolate that in a moment, but I want to go back to what you're just saying, because I'm curious, I don't understand, how does someone know, for example, and I've seen some of this on, you know, on television, that they could actually take something like Xanax and heat it and melt it down and and put it with something else. How did, how did, it, did they know this? Where did they learn this stuff? Uh, well... So it's a gradual learning, right? Mm -hmm. Most people from what I have witnessed and through Jack's friends and through Mm -hmm. what I have heard from him and through what I've seen based on the research that I did, Mm -hmm. literature research, they will start out with something that is less. Some will start out with alcohol. Some will start out with Mm -hmm. pot. And when they start out with um, other drugs, that what I mean with less is that they are not going to cause you to overdose. Like for instance, pot is not Mm. going to cause you to overdose unless you're doing the fake pot, like an opioid would, you know? Mm -hmm. So they will start out with those. And then when you start out using drugs, you end up going into the social realm where Mm. there are other drug users as well. Most Mm -hmm. of the time, that's what happens. And it's gradual. Mm -hmm. When you end up in that social realm, then you start watching and you start learning and you see what they're doing. But not only that, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, nowadays, there are tons of information online about Mm -hmm. how you can do these things. Tons of information. You can go Google it and it'll pop up. Mm -hmm. So... It's both. It's a combination of them getting to know um, the people that are in that social realm that show them and the internet. And when you're using opioids in the beginning, it's not like you're, from what I've seen, it's not that you're going to go and now all of a sudden start melting the opioid and injecting. That's not what usually happens with prescriptions, for instance you will start out taking the tablets. And then after a while, you're like, it's not enough. It's not giving me uh-huh. that energy that yeah. I was getting from the uh, original dose because now you found tolerance. Now you're like, okay, how much more of this am I going to take? Uh-huh. I, I, I don't have the money to buy it. I'm running out of money. Um, and right now, prescription drugs are being less and less prescribed like that, right? So yeah, now yeah. what are you going to do? You got to go and get it from a source that's less expensive. So you go out on the streets. Mm-hmm. So now you're getting it from the streets. And then you start thinking, okay, I have to get a different way of doing this so I can get high. Let me smoke it. Okay, mm-hmm. then you smoke it. And then after a while, you're like, okay, this isn't doing it. I've got to yeah. get more. And then you find out how do you inject it and right. then yeah. you know yeah. yeah yeah what you're telling me it sounds almost like thrill seeking that is your you 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 a person experiences a high and then they're chasing that high and the stuff that they use the first time isn't enough and they go even deeper into that it's like chasing but it is no. not only thrill seeking i okay. want to clarify to people that what yeah. happens to people that are on narcotics they are not only thrill-seeking. Their brain pathways mm-hmm. change over time. 
Wow. Neurological pathways, especially the younger you start, like under 25, mm -hmm. your brain is not fully developed yet. So it's creating new neurological pathways that are causing your body, your entire brain and body to crave the drug. Mm -hmm. You need it. And if you don't get it, you're going to have severe withdrawal symptoms. Mm. So mm. if you don't get your next dose within about every four to six hours and every opioid has a different length of time of withdrawal symptoms and every person that's on it is going to have a different severity of withdrawal symptoms. But generally speaking, if you don't get it within about every four to six hours, you're going to go into big time withdrawals. Mm. Mm. And mm. that includes symptoms like a runny nose, a headache, your body starts hurting, you start having diarrhea, you get all kinds of symptoms until you get that drug. So your main goal in life is how do I get my next dose? Yeah. So let me ask you, Dr. Adina. So is there a certain personality who may become addicted? That is, if a person, for example, so if I'm eating ice cream, I actually eat a lot of it. Is that, is that the person who becomes addicted to drugs that or is, is there more to it? That, that is something that is widely, widely being uh, said to people that it is a certain kind of personality that has an addictive behavior. And while I believe that there is some truth to that, I don't feel that that is the full truth. Mm -hmm. The reality with narcotics is that the way that they will change your brain pathway just about anyone, unless you are aware and you are careful, can become addicted. Yes. But there are red flags that I, as a pharmacist, would look for if someone mm -hmm. was coming to me. And mm -hmm. the red flags was in the initial stages and even as time moved on, when I would consult them. And if I would see that when I'm saying, oh, by the way, this drug is going to make you drowsy, and they would say, no, not at all. It's giving me so much energy. I'm able to do my stuff better. I'm able to work better. Then I will be like, okay, you need to understand that this is like a red flag for the possibility of an addiction happening here. Right. Okay. All right. So let's want to isolate the opium crisis more. And I want you to tell your story about Jack. Um, but I want you to dumb this down for me. What is opium? What is an op what is opium? What is that? What is opium? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I can tell you the mechanism of action of opioids, uh -huh. uh, but <laughs> okay. uh, there uh, are various opioids and they have various mechanism of actions. But okay. I think that the best way that I can describe it to you mm -hmm. is based on the viewers, what they can see uh, okay. in the hospital mm -hmm. setting. When let's say you get into a car accident, mm -hmm. if you go to the hospital, they will give you morphine sulfate. Have you heard of mm -hmm. that? Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Okay. So either morphine sulfate or dilaudid, and those are also opioids. Mm -hmm. They are mm -hmm. from the um, opium class. I don't. I mean, do you want me to go into all of the mechanisms? Well, no, we don't have to go that deeply. Yeah, into there, it, there are very, yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. <laughs> uh, right. deep. So, yeah, so we, okay, so we have, you know, opium, you know, uh, that, that uh, opium opioids. can be derived from the poppy seed, for instance. Okay. 
Okay. Yes. So it All can right. come from the poppy seeds. Uh-huh. And uh, then you have to mix mm-hmm. other substances into it in order for you to be able to create that product. And it right. comes various uh, uh, forms, various right. chemical okay. structures. Okay. And these... There are natural opiates and there are synthetic opiates. Okay, very good. Thank you. All right. And and these synthetic ones, um, are they more potent than the natural or about the same or what? Okay, so that is a huge question because there are Uh, so many of them out there uh, that I would have to really delve very... Well, yeah, we want to keep it... I can tell you an example of one. Okay. Uh, like for instance, heroin is a natural opiate versus methadone is a synthetic opiate. Okay. And the difference between those two is, and please do not take this as a general thing because each opiate has its own characteristics. Yeah. Um, the difference between those two is that heroin, you would need to inject approximately every four to six hours. Versus methadone, you can take a dose every 24 hours and you will be fine. And that is why if you start noticing methadone clinics popping up, it's Mm. because they are trying to take people off of the heroin that's causing them to have to only focus on that and go after the drug. Otherwise, they're going to feel sick Mm. and they want to stabilize them on just getting a once daily dose so that they can Mm. go about their life and their routine without having Mm. to chase after. Okay. And I want you to look more carefully at that. So there's a person is addicted and we have a lot of that going on through opioid crisis. What are some of the treatment models that you are aware of to treat addictions? So Unfortunately, the treatment models that I am aware of that are out there um, as of, I want to say about seven years ago, were ones that were largely, from what I've seen, ineffective. Mm. And um, it requires a lot of uh, readiness on the part of the person who is misusing the drugs and is addicted. Mm. And that is why you're seeing what's happening right now, which is an increase in homelessness, people on the yeah. street, and an increase in people who are going into the jail system. Mm. So what the treatments that we went through, Jack and I went through over the years, starting about 20 years ago, their focus was to let your loved one hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And Myself and my family, we followed that to the T. Like we were big believers on the hit rock bottom mentality. And what the treatment facilities are telling family members is that if you are trying to help your loved one, then that means you have a problem and Mm. you are what they call a codependent. Mm. Now, what I say is in retrospect, I understand why they had to come up with this type of treatment. Mm. And from what I've seen, it has stemmed from the Alcoholics Anonymous uh, movement back when that started. And that was working because back then we didn't have a crisis like the one that we're having right now. And because... Mm. There weren't drugs all over the street that are going to kill you the first time that you use it. 
And there were not as, although heroin was has been around for many years, but the crisis of this level was not around. And the readily availabilityness of it in the United States was not as much. And right now we're in a different place. And the parts of the those treatments that I really liked that I want to take away from are the fact that they care about the individual who is taking care of the person who is misusing substances. Mm. And the part that I feel was beneficial was that they are telling you to take care of yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. the new psychologists that I found that I worked with about five years ago that I found them are saying that, that Mm -hmm. you should continue to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. But they have removed the lie. This is where the lie comes in that the treatment facilities would tell us that if you let the person hit rock bottom, they are actually going to get better Mm -hmm. and that you should not help them at all. Right now, hit rock bottom can literally mean death. Mm, Okay, I see. You know, so what what you're saying, I I hear this, I think. uh, So let me make sure that I, I, I repeat it again and write is that a person can assume that by assisting a loved one, you are a codependent. You actually, you're part of the problem. Yes. Uh, and you shouldn't let them just go, but you're saying rock bottom is not what it used to be. Yes. Yeah. Rock okay. bottom, um, unfortunately, right now is not what it used to be. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened in Portugal as well. And they had mm-hmm. to change their mentality and understand that there was a skyrocketing of overdose deaths. Yeah, right yeah. now we had just last year over a hundred thousand overdose deaths. Lord, okay, all right. So I want I want us to I want people to really get the character you are referring to as Jack. Mm-hmm. Now you've already told us a little bit that Jack really is a loved one of yours, of yours and your family, who has a substance abuse problem. Can you take us into his journey and um, and I'm going to give you space to talk about this if you care to. But from what my understanding is that you've made some important discoveries yourself about faith and the like. So I'm opening this door for you to share what you care to about Jack and faith. Thank you so much. So Jack um, had a physical medical condition from childhood Mm. and it required him over the years as he grew older to need narcotics to treat this physical pain. And over the years, he became addicted to them. And he came, He got to a point where he was injecting heroin and crystal meth. He was living on the streets and he was living in jail. So it was like a back and forth. It was felony, jail, streets, felony, jail, streets. And he would often reach out to me for help. And I had been told by I was seeing a psychologist regarding this matter at the time. And I was being told to just let him hit rock bottom and do not help him at all. And that is the way that he was going to recover. So I did that for approximately 15 years. I followed that mentality until the final time when I saw my psychologist about it. She said that, um, why don't you just let him die? Because mm-hmm. it would be better for everyone if he was dead 
including him, because he is suffering. After she said this to me, I came home and I decided that, as I had been told over the many years, that I need to cut my entire relationship off with him. Then I went into this like deep, dark sadness because I love him so much. And he, I knew that he needed my help. And the worst part is I knew I could help him. And what I was being told is that although I am a pharmacist, although I have the means to help him, and this is where the lie comes in, I should not help him. Because if I did, then I had a sickness called codependency, which, by the way, is not even in the DSM criteria. Mm. So it is not an established sickness. I want everyone to understand that. And so after I cut off my relationship, he got a lot worse. As you see, many have. And they are on the streets, they are homeless, or they are in jail and they are committing crime. He got a lot worse. It became felony streets, felony streets. And so what happened is I met a celebrity. The celebrity actually uh, one day held my hands and when I was talking to him about this and he said, you are right now standing across from him. Mm. You need to come and embrace him. And when he said that and him and his wife really helped me through this, they helped me want be wanting to uh, talk to Jack and reestablish my relationship with him. And I did that, although I was very scared. I had a lot of fear because I was concerned about the people he was hanging out with. I had all kinds of fears in my mind. I didn't know who he was because I had not had a relationship with him that was close for over seven years. All I was having is hearing about him from other people. And so when they said this, it started a relationship between Jack and I. And as soon as the relationship started, he was so, so happy. He was ecstatic that he had me back in his life. Mm -hmm. I will never forget the day that when I said to him, I am picking up, picking him up from jail, he was screaming behind the phone. He was going, whoop, <laughs> because he was so happy because both him and I knew that if we would work together, he wouldn't be in the place that he was. And so that started a journey for us, but a journey with God. And what do I mean with that? While the entire world told me to let Jack go and let him hit rock bottom and let him die, something happened to me where I felt the Jesus Christ's love. His love fell upon me. And after his love fell upon me, I started to feel him speaking to me in my mind, in that still small voice in my mind, the one that nudges you to help someone, the one that nudges you to love someone, mm. the one that tells you you are able, the one that tells you it is possible. And that voice told me that he loves all of humanity. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they have done. He just wants them to seek him and find him. And 
when I felt that I was at first very shocked and I thought this can't be God. But when I looked into the Bible, I saw that it says God is love in the Bible and that he does love everyone. And he tells us to forgive people and love them, love them exactly where they are. And God, when you repent for your sins, will send the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit to live inside of you and transform you from inside out over time. Sometimes it happens quickly and sometimes it's a journey. Mm. And so all he would do is tell me to love Jack exactly where he was at. And I started to help him. Mm -hmm. Because the new psychologist that I found would actually advocate for helping your loved one in whatever way it is that you can help. Yeah, that's great. I started having lunches with him. We would go to Cheesecake Factory together and we got to know each other really, really well on a very personal mm -hmm. level. And I saw that, my goodness, he was actually a very wonderful person deep down inside. He just felt so abandoned mm. and so lost. And his heart was broken. And over mm. time, because he saw that the people that were around him that are supposed to love him, just let mm. him go mm. and let him hit rock bottom when he was in his worst state and that he couldn't get out of on his own, left him abandoned mm. on the streets, stopped talking to him, and it hardened his heart. And then when a person's heart becomes hardened, they're more keen to be defensive and just only want to take care of themselves. Yeah. The Lord Jesus comes in and softens their hearts. Yeah. You know, that's a very difficult story, but it's also a very hopeful story and now I see why the power of love shows up in your mission the power yes. of love that's awesome that is awesome um there's one last thing I want to ask you about uh I saw I think it could be your business or consulting firm straight up drug education did I get that right yes yes that is I do need to remove that that's not going to be what it's called okay. uh I am going to be doing speaking on stages regarding understanding drugs uh -huh. and changing lives through love, uh -huh. the power of love and understanding drugs. Okay. But that straight up drug ed, I don't know if I'm going to keep that name. I may change the name. I see you modifying it. Okay. I yes. like it. You know, straight up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, Maybe I'll but, keep it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, you know, uh, you have the expertise to give it to a straight. For sure. Yeah. But Dr. Dina, is there anything else you care to share with us about the opioid um, crisis that we haven't discussed already? Uh, not regarding the uh, opioid crisis, but there there is something that I want people to know. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants you all to know that he loves you all. Every single person he loves you. He is waiting for you because he has given us free will. He's waiting for you guys to seek him. And he's waiting for you guys to find him. And the way he had me do things with Jack was with love. That brought me peace. 
that brought me joy. That brought me peace of mind, knowing where he was at, knowing that I have a relationship with him while he is alive versus just grieving his death when he was alive. And the main thing Jack said that mattered the most to him from everything I did was just sitting down and having a lunch or a coffee with him and not judging him and having a conversation with him mm. and saying to his friends, that is what they value. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. That's actually, that's beautiful. Well, Dr. Adina, it has been my pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. And God bless all of you guys. Okay. You've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast. Our guest today has been Dr. Adina, pharmacist. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Until next time, good day. 